But when you're a little kid, you kind of expect everything to be balanced out like it is in the movies. Like the good guys always win over the bad guys or that there's always going to be some happy ending at the end. But I think real life is very different from that. I'm Nora McInerney, and this is Terrible Thanks for Asking. And that was Hannah Divini. And that lovely accent that you're hearing is Australian, and we all love an Australian accent, don't we? Hannah and I met the way uh, so many of us meet, the internet. Hannah, at the time, was 17. Uh, She listened to the podcast, and she sent me a message, and then we just started messaging on Instagram and then moved into WhatsApp. We sent texts. We sent voice notes. We would sometimes, you know, video call, and Hannah called me her fairy godmother, but I really think she meant her fairy internet sister because so many of her thoughts and feelings felt like reliving and replaying my own teenage years with one big addition— which is that Hannah is also disabled. I often joke that being disabled is like having a full-time job, but you don't get any breaks and you don't get paid. Kind of like most media internships. The job that Hannah doesn't get a break from is having cerebral palsy. I was born three months early, so my birthday's supposed to be in November, but it's in August. And basically when I was born, they were told that I had a bleed on my brain, that there were cysts on my brain as well, and that those cysts would act like black holes, which basically means that when they dissolved, so did the parts of my brain that they were attached to. And for years, we were like, what do you mean? Like, that kind of sounds like I don't have as much brain as I'm supposed to. And then recently, I had to have an MRI and we pulled the scans out and we could actually see the holes. We're like, oh, okay, that's what that is. When I was born, I was diagnosed with a thing called periventricular leukomalacia, which is basically a condition where It eats away at the white matter in your brain. And that's what left me with cerebral palsy. Cerebral palsy exists on a spectrum. When Hannah was a baby, the doctors gave her parents the worst case scenario. They said that Hannah would likely never walk, talk, or feed herself. There's everyone from those people who kind of walk a little lopsided and maybe don't have use of one hand, to people who can't talk, can't move, can't really do anything on their own uh, except breathe and swallow, and sometimes even that is difficult. I guess it's just luck. There's no reason that I didn't end up that way. There's nothing that I did that they didn't do or that their parents didn't do, but I'm kind of luckily in the middle of the spectrum. Like, obviously, My legs and arms don't work, but I have a great advantage in that I'm well able to communicate for myself. Hannah grew up around her two young sisters, who are, as Hannah describes, able-bodied, and classmates who were also mostly able-bodied people. So growing up, 
it's quite interesting because obviously they're quite physically capable humans and they spend a lot of time playing sport or doing like gymnastics or ballet or those sorts of things, which is all obviously stuff that isn't available to me as someone with cerebral palsy and someone who has to use a wheelchair. It often made me ironically end up feeling like the youngest because there was so much that I needed help with as well. Like I still need help getting out of bed or like in the bathroom or getting dressed or that kind of stuff. And I used to express that with being quite angry and just frustrated at the world, not really understanding like why they could do things that I couldn't do. And obviously as you get older, you understand that sometimes life just isn't fair and that's the way that things are. When I'm three years old and see my best friend at the time stand up after she's finished her lunch at daycare and I'm watching the way she stands up and then looking at my body and thinking that I want to stand up and wondering why I can't, which was like the first moment that I realised that, oh, something is different. My body's not like everybody else's. It means I have a lot more compassion for her and basically that I just want to wrap all the younger versions of myself up in a hug and say, it's okay. So the real world can be hard for a young Hannah. Her physical ability was just different from her friends or her sisters. And so was her mind and her personality. Little Hannah was creative. She was inquisitive. I was the kind of little kid who asked so many questions to the point where my parents would literally be like, you have to stop, that is enough. Like, we cannot answer all of these anymore. So I was super curious and imaginative. I tended to find a lot more space for myself in books and things like that. And that's probably because of my disability, surprise. So as children, what we know about the world and our place in it comes mostly from stories, the books we read, the movies we watch, and Hannah's world from those earliest days in the hospital was built around stories. The first kind of writer that I really connected with was Beatrix Potter. So like the stories of Peter Rabbit and all that sort of stuff. Like my mum used to read those to me in hospital when I was a teeny tiny baby and obviously had like no concept of stories or reading, but they'd been told that would be good for my development. Imagine tiny Hannah, a little preemie, being read to. Her little brain with those little holes in it absorbing the wonder of these different worlds. As soon as she can, Hannah wants to make these worlds. She doesn't just tear through stories and books and movies. She starts to write them. But I actually have my first story. I grabbed it in case you wanted to see it. I have it up here. Oh, my God. Yes. Read it. Okay. Yes. So it is called Christmas at Andu because that is the name of the preschool that I went to. And it says, one day 
Hannah and her friends at Andu were so excited because it was nearly Christmas when Santa would drop their presents off and they were having a party to celebrate. The story Hannah wrote at four years old was written out by her mother on alternating sheets of red and green paper, bound, decorated with tinsel. When Lisa, that was the name of my preschool teacher, started the music, everybody was dancing, but then everyone got really hungry, so they ate up all the party food. But then they were really tired, so all the Andrew children lay down to rest, because obviously in preschool you have... um... Nap time, baby. Yeah. Yeah. We should... We should bring that back for adults. We really should. And whenever kids whine about naps, I'm like, oh, sorry, someone's going to put you to bed and then wake you up and feed you. Sounds rough. Sounds pretty great to me. Like, just enjoy it. (laughs) Yeah. When they opened their eyes, they were not at Andu. They were at Santa's kingdom. They were all very excited because there were so many toys to play with and make. At last, they went to the gates of Santa's room. Santa asked all the Andu children what they wanted for Christmas. When everyone had told Santa what they wanted, they suddenly all felt very tired again. Then they lay down and closed their eyes, but when they opened them, they were no longer in Santa's kingdom. They were back in the Andu classroom. Then all the mums and dads were at the door to pick everyone up. The teachers wondered where the children had been. Then Hannah told Lisa they had been to Santa's kingdom, and he wished everyone at Andu A very Merry Christmas. The end. This first story of Hannah's changes everything for her. All of her able-bodied sisters and friends can go and do whatever they want. And Hannah can do whatever she wants in her stories. Hannah took a lot of inspiration from the familiar. The world of fairy tales and fantasy. And those stories tend to share familiar arcs. The character who takes a journey to fix some aspect of their life that isn't fair. The princess who gets saved by a handsome prince. The character who has had a hard go of it, but they're so good it eventually all works out. Happily ever after, every time, always reaching for that happily ever after. But there's another thing that these stories share, which is that people with bodies like Hannah's, disabled bodies, are treated very differently. Amanda LaDuck is the author of Disfigured on fairy tales, disability, and making space, and she puts it so well. I'm quoting here. These stories might purport to reach for a better world, but the disabled body is only ever viewed by them as broken and often only as worthy of a happy ending once the disability has been eradicated or otherwise overcome. What does it say when some of the most subversive narratives we know continue to entrench and perpetuate static ideas about the disabled body? That's the end of the quote, but think about it, right? Um, Ariel loses her voice, but she gets it back, which means Eric can really fall in love with her now. Elsa learns to control her ice fingers. Snow White and Sleeping Beauty come out of their comas, and the beast turns back into a prince, although I know I am not the only person who thought he was hotter as a beast in the cartoon version. Right? He totally was. But there's no overcoming cerebral palsy and no eradicating it. Hannah is a kid who knows her body is different, and who also has to undergo serious medical procedures that would make anyone scared. To help with her mobility and her growth, doctors have to break her femurs, our largest and most painful bone to break. 
glue them back together, and put metal plates in them. I was 10, and 10-year-olds don't want that kind of pain or that kind of rehab. 10-year-old me wanted to watch movies and listen to Taylor Swift songs and spend my summer in the pool instead of in bed or in hospital or on all the different pain medication that that I ended up being on, which was pretty heavy-duty stuff. And that experience changed a lot of things because up until then I'd been pretty okay with how things were. Like I obviously still struggled and had days where I absolutely hated being disabled and stuff. But from that surgery in particular, that was when the kind of seeds of anxiety and stuff sort of went into like full bloom. And that was sort of my first experience with like proper pain and real fatigue. Recovery from a surgery like that isn't easy, and tiny little Hannah is on serious painkillers and undergoing physical therapy. And that experience is isolating, but she finds solace in stories, in reading, writing, music. And she finds a serious connection with another young girl who loves all the same things, who also grew up on fairy tales and make-believe, Taylor Swift. I think I was eight or nine when singing a teacher that I had, because I used to love to sing as well, said, hey, I've got this really great song that I think your voice would be perfect for. And she played me Love Story. And immediately my brain was like, ding, light bulb moment. So that surgery that I was talking about happened a few months before Taylor Swift's Fearless Tour which was my first concert. And I remember that tour being like a beacon of light that I had to kind of work towards. Like if I can just get to the fearless tour, then I'll be okay. Like then all of this stuff will have been worth it. And and I think quite seriously, which is not something you want to hear someone say when they're 10, that tour saved me in a lot of ways. What did you hear and feel in Taylor's music that struck that place in you? Well, I think she was going through a lot of the same things that I was going through. Like, we both wanted the same thing, and that was, like, desperately to fit in. And then I think... Like, the way that she constructed stories in her songs really appealed to me because I was like, oh, well, I want to write like that. Like, I want to take the stuff that happens to me and turn it into things that people can enjoy. So I think it was definitely her songwriting that got to me the most and still has to this day. Love Story, the song that hooked Hannah, is about a girl falling in love for the first time. The lyrics are about balconies and staircases and a forbidden love that parents don't understand. 
As a Swifty, I know that Taylor started writing songs in part because her childhood was lonely. She wasn't invited to parties. She was left out by her peers. It's what makes her and her music so relatable to her younger listeners and to her middle-aged listeners that it reflects our very human need to feel seen and valued and to find our place and our people. If it wasn't for Taylor Swift's music, I don't think that I would have made it through that particular period. And, like, I'm the kind of kid who, unfortunately, has really struggled with friendship for most of my childhood and into my young adulthood. And often it would feel like, well, I don't, I don't really have anybody, but at least I have Taylor's music. Did you really feel like you didn't have anyone? Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was pretty bad for a while there. I, I was bullied pretty consistently throughout primary school and high school. There would be things like parties or just people having people over or even like them deciding that sport was something that was really important to you because at like ages nine and ten you start to realise that, hey, this sport thing might be kind of fun or like just whether there were parts of the playground that weren't like super accessible to me or different things like that. It was a very lonely time and that's probably the Hannah that I wish I could most give a hug out of all the Hannahs that I've been. You wonder if there's something that's like, wrong with you but obviously you don't want your your disability to be the thing that's wrong with you because you can't change that like that's going to be with you forever so like what are you supposed to do if that's the thing that's wrong with you um you're like I hope it's just my personality like I can change that yeah like I'll be who whoever you want me to be but if it's the fact that I'm in a wheelchair well like sorry buddy you're stuck with this. Like I had this one girl and at the time I thought she was my best friend. We were 16, 17. So she was kind of like the Abigail to my Taylor Swift, if you will. I remember I went over there for a sleepover to her house and I'd been at her house for maybe half an hour. And she sat me down and was like, I've got some stuff I need to tell you. And I was like, okay. Just kind of those immediate alarm bells of like, this is not going to be good. Um, and she kind of said, uh, yeah, you drag everybody down around you. You're like not a great deal of fun to be around. You like you just sort of drain people. And I remember sitting there and instead of yelling or defending myself or saying, I don't think I want to sleep over now, I froze and I smiled and said, okay, and continued to sleep over and then went home and like crumbled 
into a million tiny pieces because all I've ever wanted was friends and I thought I'd finally I'd finally found one I thought I'd like I'd found the friend that the movies tell you you have like that was definitely my entire thing when I was at school I I was very much like yes I am the girl on the bleachers I just want people to see and unfortunately when people don't understand something or someone they tend to lash out or they tend to not know what to do so they don't do anything the amount of times that I would hear as a kid oh we wanted to invite you but like stairs or something like that We'll be right back. We get support from The Body Shop, and today I am here with Larissa Crawford, one of The Body Shop's leading lights ambassadors. Larissa is the founder of Future Ancestor Services, and I met her because I am also one of The Body Shop's leading lights ambassadors. Larissa's work is in climate justice and anti-racism, and she is incredible. Larissa, thank you for being here with us today. Bonjour. Hello. I'm so excited to be chatting with you today. (laughs) So we met through the body shop and I'm so grateful for that. And while I would love to talk with you about body butter all day, uh, this is a podcast about the hard things in life and we are going to get deep. So you have said before that self-love starts with understanding how and why I've been taught self-doubt. So I'm a big self-doubter. I'm working on it. It is hard sometimes, but I'm also a white woman with many different layers of privilege and knowing your self-doubt looks different from mine. So as an Afro-Indigenous woman and someone who lives with chronic pain and now a traumatic brain injury, what has self-doubt traditionally looked like and felt like for you? I feel like a lot of people can relate to this process of being taught to self-doubt. For example, I just made a post on Instagram about country music. And I've always had people give me SHIT for loving it. And it really wasn't until I started learning about the research and the history of country music and African-American roots of country music and its roots in actually like traditional indigenous African music that I started to get a bit more confident and have that part of my identity just affirmed when we don't love ourselves, it's coming from a force that is intentional. I love that positioning, which is it's not simply just an inside job. It's understanding outside forces And there are people who are going to be listening to this who are like, well, you know, my experience is different. I don't think I love myself that much. What can they do to start working towards self-love? My first steps really started is also expanding my understanding of self to my ancestors. It helps me start identifying, okay, where do I need to put in some more work to unlearn and then relearn? more positive, more affirming, more generative ways of understanding self. 
It wasn't until I started appreciating the laws, the policies, and, and the efforts and resources that were invested in stripping us of our culture and our language that I started to change this focus of anger and frustration from myself and my family to those forces. It, it created not only more space for me to demonstrate empathy, but it also helped me really assign my energy towards the root causes of why I've been taught to hate. When I look to history, when I look to the reasons why I've been taught to self-doubt, I've actually found a lot of healing in that, and that is where I find a lot of these trailheads for a lot of the pathways I've pursued in understanding what it means to love myself and all the aspects that make me me. So high school is universally kind of miserable. It just is. When Hannah and I met, she was in high school and she was miserable. And it made me rethink those years of my life. I went through all my old journals. I was shocked to see that my rosy memories of those years did not represent reality. Reading notebook after notebook, I saw that, yep, I was also miserable and anxious and depressed and felt worthless and horrible for all four years with these little intermittent bursts of joy. Now, in the U.S., one of the big milestones of this time of high school is the prom. It's a formal or semi-formal dance where girls spend hundreds or thousands of dollars on a dress and hair and makeup and boys rent tuxedos and buy corsages and you eat a fancy dinner and you take photos. It's like a dress rehearsal for an elegant adulthood you will probably never have. It's a celebration of youth and hope and grinding on the dance floor to songs that would make your grandmother blush if she understood the words. Where I went to high school, the prom was a school event. Students helped organize it, but the school was the ultimate shot caller. They signed the check for the venue. They sold the tickets. Grown-ups ultimately were in charge, which is a good thing. In Australia, or at least where Hannah went to school, their version of prom was called formal. So formals generally involve, for the girls anyway, like the dresses. Some people's will be really expensive. Like we once had a girl... I think she was 16, so this was a year 10 formal, so, like, the least important of the lot, and she spent, like, $900 on a dress. So you have that kind of level. Like, that was the thing that we'd all seen in in movies and those sorts of events represented nightmares for me. And a lot of the elements are the same, dressing up, dancing, dinner, but a major difference is that formal at Hannah's school, is organized by students entirely, which is bananas. What is going on down under? So the year 10 one would be at like this kind of dodgy hotel. Our teachers wouldn't really be involved. So it'd be like the first time that we were there without super adult supervision. So you can imagine what that was like for a bunch of 16-year-olds. They're like, oh, suddenly we've discovered this thing called alcohol or like how that works. (laughs) So the anticipation was like, oh my God, we're going to a dance. Like you're 16, you want it to be like those movies that we see. And I wore like this white top with this flowery skirt 
and I had someone come and do my makeup, which was a big deal for me because I never wear makeup. And I went with some friends because we were the kind of kids that nobody was asking. And you sit around, you have a nice meal, you dance like to some music and you notice that the popular kids who never talk to you at school are suddenly okay to dance like around you, not with you, but like just in your like general space, which was really weird because it was like suddenly you're okay to dance and involve me that way. But like if I asked you to involve me at school, you'd look at me like I was something on the bottom of your shoe. So that's her first formal. It kind of sucks, but she gets to wear a beautiful outfit and get all dolled up at least. My first prom, I got food poisoning and my date didn't like me at all, but my dress made me look like a wedding cupcake and I loved it. The next year, when formal time rolls around, things are even worse. People like harbour cruises here, like on Sydney Harbour, which is obviously on a boat. But if you're in a wheelchair, boats aren't super accessible to you. And there was me and one other girl in a wheelchair. And no matter how hard we tried to explain to them that, like, we can't go on a boat, they still had it on a boat. We literally um, would tell them, and it got to the point where teachers got involved on our behalf and we would cry and they still were like, no, we're having it on the boat. The students are unmoved by Hannah and their other disabled classmates. They go ahead with the formal on the boat, knowing that they are leaving some of their peers behind. And you know what? Teenagers don't have fully developed brains. They're out here running around with a brain that is only partially assembled, that puts them and their personal needs first. And that sucks. It really does. It is unfair. It's garbage. It's so humiliating. But there's always year 12, which is the biggest deal of all the formals. So the next year for her final formal, Hannah goes all out for her dress. My dress was a special circumstance because my parents had bought it overseas. They'd been to to Ireland with my younger sisters for a wedding and I hadn't been able to go because I was obviously in senior year. So taking an international trip probably wasn't the best way to, to study. And they came home and presented it as like this big surprise and were like, oh, we hope you like it. And it was like this red silk dress with flowers all up the side. It was beautiful. It is a dress worthy of a Taylor Swift video or a fairy tale. And she gets it months in advance in anticipation. By the time year 12 is in full swing, the location of the year 12 formal is announced. You find out months in advance and is this really fancy place and obviously my immediate instinct whenever I go anywhere is obviously to check how accessible the place is so I'm like 
checking and I'm going, oh God, they've done it again. Like after the whole fiasco with the boat last year and all the stuff that happened, like how have they not got it through their heads that like after six years of being at school with me and this other girl who was in a wheelchair as well, that we would very much like to be included. The location isn't accessible to Hannah in her wheelchair, and she needs her wheelchair. So here she is with a dress and a dream and a dance she can't get into. Do you cry? Do you rage? What do you do? You you do both of those things. And then you try and very calmly, but also like, with steam coming out your ears, explain to the girls who are organising it that, like, hey, guys, this is year 12 and this is the big one. Like, this is the one that everybody has basically been waiting for, like, since they were old enough to sort of understand the concept of prom or, like, a formal. And, like, it would be nice if we could go. And in the end, they did end up making it accessible but they had made such a scene and such a fuss around like the inconvenience of it that it felt like we weren't wanted there so we both of us me and the other girl decided not to go because we just felt completely um unwanted and unvalued. These formals are a good microcosm for how Hannah has experienced life. Trying to fit into a world that just won't budge for her or for people like her. A world where she and her existence are an afterthought. I'm going to quote Leduc again, writing about fairy tales. Why, in all of these stories about someone who wants to be something or someone else, was it always the individual who needed to change and never the world? That sentence was written about fairy tales, but it works well here for formal and for so much more. The expectation is that Hannah will suck it up or back off. The expectation is not that the world will change or that her classmates will, but that Hannah will that she will make it easier for other people to be around her, that she'll make her existence more palatable for them, that she won't make a fuss or be a bother. We'll be right back. Hannah's in college now. She's a whole four years past that year 12 formal, but so much of that experience still rings in her ears. Hannah and I have a lot in common. We are Swifties. We love to read. We are highly emotional, and we both love the show This Is Us. And depending on where you are in the show, the following minute may or may not be a spoiler, but I actually don't think it is at all. It's not. It's more about a concept than a specific plot point, if that makes sense. Your call, though. Here's Hannah. 
Okay, so have you seen that episode where Randall is at the, like, support group and they're talking about ghost kingdoms and he's trying to say, like, yeah, that's what I had in my head, a ghost kingdom where I wasn't adopted. And as soon as I saw that scene, it was like somebody had just shot an arrow. I was like, curse you, Dan Fogelman. How did you know this? Because I never had it articulated before, but I have a ghost kingdom in my head. I have a place where I'm not disabled, where I imagine what my life would look like. For a long time, like Randall, I guess, I felt ashamed that I had that in my head because I was like, what am I doing with the life that I actually have if I have this life that can never be? Because obviously there's a lot about my life that would be different if I wasn't disabled. It's not just a case of suddenly being able to walk or run or go up and down stairs or that kind of thing. Like there would be people in my life who I didn't know if I wasn't disabled. There would be things that I wasn't doing, things like this, or there's no guarantee that I would be like focused on writing because I could be out playing sport or that kind of stuff or or that I would have had like the childhood trauma, I guess you could call it. So it's a whole different life. I actually haven't really said that out loud to that many people aside from my parents Um, because I often don't know how people will react, like whether that's something that they will expect as normal or whether that's something that they will judge me for. What do you think people will judge you for? If you say like, well, yeah, there's a part of me where I think about a life where I don't have CP. I think about a life where I'm, you know, where my life is much more similar to the lives of my sisters or my peers. Um, I think it's just like, it comes back to that not wanting to appear ungrateful for things and also not wanting to necessarily present to everybody that like being disabled has to be like a miserable experience because I feel like that's a lot of the narrative too like so many people will say I don't know how you do it if if I was in your position like I just wouldn't do it um it's not like I mean you you can't opt out you can't be like oh what I refuse I refuse just be like sorry not not doing it today um It's not like that all the time. There are wonderful moments of joy and there are things that I never would have got to do or thought about being a part of if I wasn't disabled. But we have to also be able to have space to be like, this thing is hard. Sometimes it is terrible and it's okay that it's terrible because I feel like also in order to make it easier for other people to see past our disability or to accept us, we often don't want to, not that we don't want to talk about it, but we don't want to, we don't want to say like, actually today is a really bad pain day or today I got upset because my sister drove to school and I would give anything to drive a car or like, 
heck, I just like to be able to walk out the front door and go for a run. Like those sorts of things. It's not necessarily even the big things. Like it's not like, oh, if I wasn't disabled, I'd love to go to the moon. It's I'd really love like if I could just go out there and run and that would be a way of like processing what's going on in my head. Or if I could just walk up and down the stairs or that sort of stuff. We all participate in this useless and painful exercise, don't we? Imagining who or what we would be if things were just different. If we were born into a different situation, if we'd taken another road. And there's a little bit of shame in that sometimes. Because even in our imagination, changing one thing changes everything. Without CP, Hannah wouldn't be this same Hannah. And there's a lot to love about who she is and about her life. It's Hannah's CP that has forced her into a lot of it, that has made her exactly how she is and who she is. Hannah is not too old for fairy tales or for Taylor Swift. Neither am I. And her focus right now isn't about how to fit into the world, but how to change the world. Starting with, or at least including, fairy tales. So the petition I started is essentially to get Disney Studios to create a disabled Disney princess. And I'd sort of had the idea for a long time. It kind of first sort of started coming together in 2015 after I went to see the film um, Inside Out, which I thought was like this beautiful portrayal of like mental health and anxiety and all that stuff. But at a level that kids can understand. And I remember thinking, well, if there are people out there committed to making films like this, like surely it wouldn't be so difficult for them to kind of leap over and create a disabled princess or character. But in terms of the petition, I started that in December of last year. And at the moment, I think... We're like just shy of 36,000 signatures from around the world, which is really, really mind-blowing to me. The kind of princess Hannah imagines is one whose disability is central to her character, but not a problem to be solved. A princess who is in a wheelchair and finds love and adventure not by leaving it behind, but in it. A princess who saves the day without having to change who she is in this world. A protagonist who, like all good protagonists, longs for change, but creates it in her environment, not just in herself. Hannah is, no disrespect to her or other 21-year-olds, still a kid. She is. She's a kid. A college kid living with her parents and staying up too late. I see her online when I know she should be in bed, and yes, I'm tattling, She has no connections to Hollywood, but she made this petition anyway. There's a ghost kingdom where this happens for her and other kids like her, where her voice is heard and the world changes. 
where kids like Hannah can see themselves on screen and other kids can see disabled kids as fully formed human beings whose body is just a part of their humanity. And then I think it's really important to obviously show able-bodied kids that the differences that people have aren't something to be afraid of. Like I will often have little kids like stare at me or ask questions or whatever when I'm out and about. And sometimes the parent reaction is to like shush them or hurry them along or like not cause me any trouble. And I often feel like saying, it's okay. Like I'd prefer you come and ask the question because like then I can teach you and then maybe that makes it easier for you to like grow up into being an ally. Kids are a great place to start, aren't they? While they're forming their worldviews, while they're absorbing stories about the world and the people in it. While their imaginations are firing on all cylinders and their brains haven't been fully calcified by the incessant input of phones and emails and notifications and the grind of daily existence. What if they had more stories that included more versions of humanity and heroics? A shift in the narrative from fixing what is wrong on an individual to how we should instead help the world change and adapt. It's definitely a start, and I hope that more people get on board, because basically what I was trying to do was create it so that the disabled kids of the future and even the able-bodied kids of the future don't have to um, wonder what their lives could look like. And like I want to be very clear that I'm not expecting this princess to be saved by someone riding in on a white horse. Like, that's not the narrative that I want to create because disabled people don't need saving. Like, I want people to see us as the hero of our own story. And I want it to be obvious that people with disabilities want the same things. Like, we still want the friends, we still listen to the same music, we still want to fall in love and have adventures and do all of those things. All of those things, and so much more. If you want to support Hannah's petition, we linked it in our show notes. If you are Taylor Swift and want to write a song with Hannah, you should DM her. If you're Disney and want to make a disabled princess, same thing, DM Hannah on Instagram. And if you want to read the book we've referenced, it's called Disfigured on Fairy Tales, Disability, and Making Space. And it's by Amanda Leduc. We'll link that in the notes too. 
I'm Nora McInerney, and this is Terrible Thanks for Asking. And our production team is do 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 Marcel Malikibu do 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 Beth Perlman do 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 Jordan Turgeon do 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 Jacob Maldonado Medina do 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 Megan Palmer do 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 um all you know a lot of people help us make this show Joffrey Lamar Wilson who is just such a beautiful musician he made our theme music you've got to go check out his music. Uh, at joffreylamarwilson.com. I'm telling you, you will love it. We are a production of APM, American Public Media. Uh, We have many ways that you can support the show. You're doing one right now. You're listening to the show. Such a huge way to support us. Thank you. Uh, The fact that you share your time with us is really meaningful, and I appreciate that. If you would like to uh, financially support this show, we have a little thing we're calling TTFA Premium. We are doing ad-free episodes. We're doing bonus content, uh, longer interviews, all this kind of stuff. Um, You can get in on on the fun at ttfa.org slash premium. Uh, we will be back again next week. <laughs>